Fanon. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. A first date restaurant, a first date meet cute says it all because when you are about to establish a short-term or a long-term relationship, it is the restaurant that says everything about you. It says everything about the date. It says everything about moving forward, how this whole, yeah, relationship is going to work. The restaurant. It all comes down to the restaurant. You see, if you have your first date at a bar, if you have your first date at a five-star, a three, excuse me, a three-star Michelin-star restaurant, I mean, that says, you know, how it's going to be, how, uh, you know, you are pretty much establishing the foundation. And of course, if you make your first date a Mexican restaurant, a very chill, a very casual, fun, mariachi-playing Mexican restaurant like Jerry Maguire did in the movie Jerry Maguire with his date, Dorothy. Well, that is also establishing the tone of how the relationship is going to go. This is Restaurant Fiction. My name is Monis Rose, and if you haven't guessed already, we talk about the fictional restaurants in TV, in film, and we dissect them. Today's subject is the Mexican restaurant Paco's Tacos from the movie Jerry Maguire. We are talking to none other than amazing novelist Siri James. Siri James knows a thing or two about this Mexican restaurant because it is not just a fictional restaurant to her. It is also real. And we dive into her. We dive into her creative process. And of course, we talk about Jerry Maguire. Now, for those listening to this podcast, we apologize for the sound on my end. No, our guest, her sound is amazing. She sounds super clear. It's us with the pops and the static. So if you don't mind that, please give a listen to this important Mexican restaurant, not just in the film Jerry Maguire, but also to our hometown. Yes, both Siri and my hometown, Culver City, California. Go. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, uh, restaurant fiction, when we go for dates, we like to pick a place that is fun, that is festive. We're not talking about, this is not fancy schmancy cloth napkin, uh, Michelin star tasting menus. And we're not about just a bar to get a little buzz. No, we want fun because that's what restaurant fiction is about. We want the mariachi playing uh, players and musicians. We want um, interrupting the most intimate conversations at all times. We want just, you know, nachos. We just want guacamole. We just want uh, a quesadilla. We might even want to get a little fancy. We might even want, say, a chimichanga. 
I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that, but what we really just want is a vibe. And when it comes to first dates, we want that vibe to be fun. And there's none other than the perfect fun vibe of having that first date meal at Paco's Tacos. You got it. Honestly, that is really, that's really all we got from Restaurant Fiction. (laughs) We are, that's a little short review because it's just, it's super just fun. It's, um, we're talking to Surrey James and before, you know, with, uh, for all of our listeners out there, I ask all of our guests what they want to talk about in terms of fictional restaurant bar club and Surrey said, tacos, tacos. And it's from the movie. Jerry Maguire. It is the fictional restaurant in Jerry Maguire, but it's also a real restaurant in Los Angeles County. And what's so cool about this scene, what's so pivotal about this scene is that it's a first date and it's a first date type of restaurant. And, you know, with that being said, I wanted to just give our listeners a little more context. Uh, But with that being said, Sari, did we get that right? Did we get that very short blurb? It's not really a review. It's almost just like a summary. Did we get that right? Did we get the feel of it right? We did. It was perfect. Awesome. Well, I mean, you know, date meals. I mean, have, what was the most fun date meal you've had? Because, you know, you see Jerry Maguire. He's in the scene for our viewers. He's taking Renelle's, uh, Renee Zegwer, Zellweger. Uh, character out for their pretty much first date and Renee's wearing this uh, uh, like a cocktail outfit not really you know she's probably thinking like more for a club or something like that she probably does, doesn't fit in fashion wise in a very casual restaurant but who the heck cares because it's fun and there's mariachi players playing and in a way do you think that's romantic do you think that whole date scene as a Romantic writer, is that like a very romantic scene? Is it a very, yeah. Well, it is, because you know, I'll never forget what I think of as my most romantic date. It it wasn't necessarily my first date. I got married very young. So I was already married on my 21st birthday. My husband took me out to this Polynesian themed restaurant and we were living in San Diego. We were on this super tight budget. We could not really afford to go out to eat or buy presents. He bought me diamond and ruby earrings, and I wore a sexy little black cocktail dress, and just like in Jerry Maguire, and he takes me to this restaurant with exotic decor, and I don't remember what we ate. I don't even remember the name of the restaurant. I just know it was the ambiance that was so romantic, and being with this gorgeous man I had just married, and... I'll never forget how I felt. And then, you know, in this date scene, first date scene in Jerry Maguire, it's so similar. She wears a sexy little black dress and the restaurant there, Paco's, what's so wonderful about it is they have the best, most authentic Mexican food you'll get anywhere. But it's kind of a little divey, kitschy place. It's got paper decorations hanging from the ceiling that change Every month, according to the holiday. So if it's March, the whole month, it'll be St. Patrick's Day decorations. And it's February. It's all about Valentine's Day. And there's a woman in a corner making tortillas at the tortilla station. And uh, so, you know, on that first date in Jerry Maguire, it was exciting because the first time I saw the movie, I was at the Writers Guild Theater with my family. 
And my son, Ryan, who was very small at the time, the characters get to this restaurant and he goes, oh, that's Paco's, that's Paco's. And I'm like, no, it couldn't be Paco's because they had changed it, they dressed the set. They put little paper lanterns on the tables and they added a mariachi band, which is doesn't, there are no mariachi singers at Paco's. And they added a payphone by the front door and it was just different. But our two main characters are sitting at a table by the wall and there's a mural behind them. And Paco's has colorful murals on all the walls. And there's this mural uh, in Mexico, a woman standing at a well with holding a big pitcher of water on her shoulder. That was our table. Every time our family went to Paco's, we asked for that table in that exact spot next to that woman sitting at that well, you know? And so we're like, oh my God, it is Paco's. That was exciting. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, what, what does that say, you know, about first date when, you know, the first date is, you know, of all restaurants say, instead of a Michelin star, instead of, you know, barbecue or, um, you know, tasting menu, this first date was at a Mexican restaurant. What does the Mexican restaurant say about the first date and the first date say about the Mexican restaurant? Well, you know, great first dates don't have to be Mexican restaurants. It just happens that Paco's is so warm and inviting and you feel comfortable. You can wear whatever you want, you know, and the food is always delicious. It doesn't matter what you order. It's going to be delicious. And everybody there is having a good time. There's usually a long wait. And that's when you know the food is great. And you come away so happy and satisfied. And it's the best blue cheese dressing on the planet. They make it, you know, fresh. And the tortillas are perfect. And every dish you order is going to be good. So it kind of sets the scene when you also, you aren't paying $55 just for your main course, not to mention all the other extras and the alcohol. You, you When you go to a really fancy restaurant, if you're me, you're thinking about that bill that's going to come at the end. And, and this, this is really worth what I'm spending. You don't think about that at Paco's. It's, you know, a fair price for a fabulous meal and you just have a good time. Getting to know one another and for the audience out there, um, on first dates, you know, even before I was married and then the first date for my now wife. So before that, I would take uh, women who I was uh, seeing, not all at once, different times in my life. I would, uh, <laughs> I would take them to a taco truck because first of all, this is, might be a little egotistical. I know where all the good taco trucks are in LA and I know good food. And it was Almost like, hey, I wanted good food is a very important value to me. I want whoever I end up with, I want this person to also value good food. You know, that I want that to be a very high value for them. You know, like with with my now wife, we did not go to a taco truck on our first date, but I took her to a farmer's market because once again, it was about food. It was about my world. My world is food. So like this is my world. Um, I really hope you you have uh, at least you make it important in your life, or at least a little bit of important that good food is important. You know, it's true. Whoever you're in your main relationship with, they have to be on the same page when it comes to food. Yeah, I couldn't be with anybody who didn't enjoy pacos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, in terms of the movie, how important is this scene? How important is this this dating scene in the? Uh, Oh, it's very important. It's a key transitional moment in Jerry and Dorothy's relationship. It's their first date. 
but so important because up to now they've just been in a business relationship. But Dorothy from literally scene one in the movie, she is in love with Jerry Maguire. So when she gets this opportunity to take it to another level, to have it be a personal romantic moment together, that's why she wears that dress. It's just like, here's the other side of me you haven't seen. And then there they are in this just wonderful place where they can just talk about stuff that has nothing to do with business. That's the whole point of going out on a date, right? Get to know you better. And then, you know, maybe this is a spoiler, but uh, at their wedding later in the movie, they have mariachis serenading them. And that's a callback to their first date. Who has that at their wedding? So that was cool. That is awesome. Everything changed after that date. That's when they became a couple. That's true. Switching now, when you're writing your own novels and maybe not actually just even brainstorming, just even in the creation process of the idea, at least when it comes to a character, do you ever ask yourself or have you ever asked yourself, what do my characters eat? Even if you don't actually put food in your writing. Well, I do so much research before I start writing any project and I do character background charts and I fill in all kinds of information. And sometimes I do fill in what their favorite foods are because people often connect on, you know, things they bond over and bonding over food is a really good way for two characters to fall in love with each other. Like we're talking about. So I do study that, but what's interesting is that I write in all different genres. So I write contemporary fiction and historical fiction. So the kind of research I do into food is different. So for my historical fiction, some of it is set in England in the 19th century. It was very different back then. In England, in the 19th century, food was only available according to the season. So you really only got fresh fruits and vegetables in summer into early autumn, and that was it. So the meals that you ate had to be including what was available at the time. So, and they they didn't have restaurants in 1800. Even, you know, in the mid 1800s in England, there were not restaurants. There were inns and taverns where you would only eat if you were traveling somewhere. You're on the road, your carriage stops there, change horses and you have a terrible meal or maybe spend the night and have a terrible meal. And then, you know, you move on and you can't wait to get where you're going and have some good food. People only, that's why when you see these movies set in these eras, nobody's eating at a restaurant. They're eating at each other's homes. And you have these fabulous tables set with people enjoying many, many courses. And it's all served in a particular way and a particular order. So a ton of research has to go into food for a historical novel, ton. And then contemporary fiction, more, you know, fitting with this particular um, podcast. Yeah, I have a bunch of restaurant scenes in all of my contemporary books, like my book Forbidden. That's a young adult novel. It's a, a series that I co-wrote with my son, Ryan, and it's action-packed paranormal adventure about a teenage girl who finds out she's half angel and her whole existence is forbidden. And the hero, Angel, is an angel gone AWOL. So it's so much fun because we created a hierarchy kind of thing where angels live very Spartan existence and they don't ever get to eat anything good. They just, you know, as angels do, they're very stoic. So here he is hiding out AWOL from his duties in high school because he looks 16. They age very differently in heaven. And he's never tasted pizza. 
He's never tasted a chocolate chip cookie. So for when he tries these things, it's nirvana. So that was really fun. And and I do put restaurants in all the contemporary fiction I have. And I have a lot of fun picking what meal are these people going to eat? And how is it going to further the character development in the story? You have at least two characters, you know, obviously a lot more, but at least two. You know, these characters have to have chemistry you know i mean they just have to you know how do you develop chemistry for the characters on the page i always like to say that characters should fall in love through conversation and it really bugs me when i see a movie and two people meet and they exchange you know three lines of dialogue and then you have a montage of them doing all these romantic looking things and suddenly they're madly in love and that doesn't make any sense i want to know what did they see in each other that caused them to fall in love with each other? I want to hear them talking to each other and I want to experience the fun of watching them fall in love. So I create chemistry through things that they bond over. So it's always important, of course, to have some kind of physical chemistry. Physical attraction is important, but I give, I make sure that they discover something about each other that they admire and They always learn something from each other that changes them in an important way. And they find things that they agree on, that they have similar views about, that they bond on. And then the things they don't agree on, they can argue about them and learn stuff from each other. So this is where, to me, you build chemistry. You're building a relationship, and it should be the way it happens in real life. Why do we fall in love with people? There are things about them that we just adore, and the job of the writer is to portray that in fiction. For your own fiction, sorry, but also with Jerry Maguire, how do you make, like, say, food and a fictional restaurant pop on the page? It's about the character's response, their emotional response to where they are. So you set the scene, you let us see it, and then we have to touch all the senses. We have to hear what's going on. We have to taste the food. We have to smell the food. We have to have the emotional response. So, you know, when Alec in Forbidden tastes a chocolate chip cookie, we have to know what is he experiencing while tasting this. And it will recall to our own mind how much we love chocolate chip cookies and we get to relive it with him. So it's really all about touching the senses and get seeing it through the character's point of view. How are they experiencing it? You mentioned a little bit about before you even start the actual initial first draft of a novel, you started your process, you know, the research, you know, you've written Novels, screenplays, plays, what are like the similarities in crafting a story for each medium? I use the same story crafting structure and it's called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. And it's genius. And I think every single story, doesn't matter whether it's a movie or a novel or a play or a short story, doesn't matter. It has to follow all of the beats that Blake Snyder invented in his Save the Cat structure. And of course it's called Save the Cat because one of the elements is make your main character sympathetic. Like for example, have him save a cat who's stuck in a tree. Then we see the person do that and we go, oh, we like this person. They help cats, you know? So you, um, and without going into detail because you can find all of this online, they have all, I own every single book and there's software you can get to help you structure your projects. But 
you know, learn all of those story beats and they should be gospel. And then um, this Save the Cat structure also has different genres, which are story types. And I think there's 10 of them. And so think about your story that you want to tell, which of those 10 story types does your story fit into? And then um, outline it according to all the beats that are required. And then your story will have the arc it needs, your character will have the arc he or she needs. You will have all the pivotal moments that you need from the in, in incident in the beginning that gets it going, things that must happen in the middle, you know, an all is lost moment that leads into the third act. And so it's just so important to get all of these um, elements right. And to me, every character has to face a crisis decision in the end and make some kind of sacrifice before earning his or her happy ending. And that's, of course, if you have a happy ending. If it's a tragedy, it's slightly different. But nevertheless, you follow these beats and you're good to go. It's, it's a lot of work. You have to go over and over it. I sometimes spend months in this outlining phase before I begin writing. Wow. Well, you know, with writing, voice is very important. How did you find your voice, Sari, and how would you describe your voice? That is such an interesting question. My voice changes depending on the kind of book I'm writing. So when I was writing novels from the point of view of Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte, it was very important that I sound as much as possible like them, which is kind of a crazy thing to attempt. But I I had these stories and wanted to write, so I decided I would just challenge myself. And when writing a book, for example, about Jane Austen, I would reread her books over and over and over during the entire writing process. I would only read books by Jane Austen or about Jane Austen and, and watch her movies over and over to soak up the whole ambiance of it all so that I could sound like her. And fortunately, the critics and the reviewers felt like I wrote exactly like Jane Austen or slightly tweaked Jane Austen for a modern audience, but everyone liked it. I even had um, an Italian English professor contact me and say, she read my book, The Lost Memories of Jane Austen, and she was halfway through reading this romance about Jane Austen, the man who inspired her return to writing. And she was so excited. She did a whole lecture to her class about how these memoirs were discovered and Jane Austen had this romance. Then she got to the end and realized it was a novel that was inspired by me, but then it was very closely woven with reality and all the facts we know. But still, she believed for the whole time she was reading it that it was a memoir written by Jane. It says a novel on the cover, but anyway, that was the most flattering response I've ever had. And I did the same thing with Charlotte Bronte. You know, I spent two years writing that book and I went to England and I visited the parsonage where she lived and I visited the school she attended. And I go to all these places and I meet people who tell me about her and I, what they have researched about her. I read every biography I could find and then I just keep reading their works, even their juvenilia over and over and over. So they're in their letters, all their preserved correspondence. That's really key if you can find it. So then their voices in my head and I'm just trying to channel them. So that's one kind of voice. And there's a very different voice if I'm writing a different, a normal, I would call it a normal kind of fiction novel. 
then it depends on the genre. So if it's young adult, I read nothing but young adult. Well, I'm writing a young adult novel to make sure I have that voice in my head. And if I'm writing historical fiction or contemporary romance, that's what I do. So I try to make sure that I'm up on what is the voice that readers are used to hearing. And then I find the place in myself or my own original take on that can emerge. Thank you for that answer. You have a plethora of work across all different styles and subjects, you know, leading to my question, Suri, how do you stay consistently creative and not plateau? Well, exactly. By doing that, I try to challenge myself um, by trying different things. And maybe that's crazy because a lot of authors, they pick one genre and they stick to it. They maybe pick a particular historical period, and they only write romantic fiction set in that period. 25 or 50 books all set in the same era, the same kind of book, or a modern-day police procedural, and they get really good at it. it. It's easier slightly to do because you don't have to start from scratch researching that. You already are an expert in that area. And for whatever reason, I need to keep challenging myself and trying new things. So I've been moving around in different genres and really having fun. So whatever kind of book I'm inspired to write next, I take the time to research it and fall in love with it and write that. Keeps it fresh. <laughs> you know, usually people ask, I'm sure you get asked for it for advice and, and, you know, people ask other mentor like people for advice. Well, this question is say like, say you meet a smart, driven, emerging writer who either wants to have a career like you or wants to just be a professional writer in general. What advice would you give this smart, driven, emerging writer to ignore? Oh, to ignore? To ignore. Okay, so there's two things I think I would say to ignore. The first one is this old saying, only write what you know. I keep hearing that. And if you only write what you know, you're going to just be doing your memoirs. And, you know, we are intelligent human beings. We have great imaginations. We can do research and learn things that we don't know. So I always say, go to the place where the story is happening and research it. I try to walk in the footsteps of your character, the people who live it. Interview people who either lived at that time or if it's a contemporary story, who have that exact profession or are an expert in that field. And gather all the research you can until you feel you know it so well that you understand you can get into the character's head. And then you can write it. You don't have to write only what you know. Pieces of yourself are going to find their way into the story anyway. And the other one is about taking notes. It's really critical that you have beta readers that you get people to read your work before you show it to anybody else. Even when you think it's perfect and ready, it's never ready. There are things you haven't noticed. And so it's important to get advice, really important to listen to all the feedback you can get. But at the same time, the thing I'm saying to ignore is you don't have to listen to every single piece of feedback as if it is fact, because everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And I've had many cases where certain feedback, it didn't resonate with me. So I stuck to my guns and I stuck with what I had and that turned out to be really important. So I would say, trust your gut 
and your instinct because you know your story better than anyone else. And sometimes your gut is right. So you have to learn to figure out which feedback to accept and which to ignore. Siri, thank you so much for coming on the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. You are welcome back anytime. Hopefully, we can do a live recording someday at Paco's Tacos. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, for all of those listening, if you forgot already, you can read, you can learn more about Siri James on her website. That is S-Y-R-I-E-J-A-M-E-S.com, which is pronounced Siri James. There she has her book, she has her bio, she has her blog, she has how to contact her, how to connect with her. She loves her fans. She loves all who have read her work and just, you know, want to talk shop. I mean, she is an open book, pun intended. As for us with Restaurant Fiction, my name is Monis Rose. If you want to find out more about us and what we do, well, just listen to another episode, another amazing episode. I don't know if it's going to be as good as this. That is up to you. That is your opinion. We'll leave that up to you because that's what art is. But we honestly think this episode was pretty damn good. Until next time, nothing makes sense. Nothing ever does. Peace. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant?